When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Up Sabres presented by the Hockey Podcast Network and the Charging Buffalo. As always, I'm Brendan. And I'm Taylor. And Taylor, the NHL draft has come and gone, and I got to say, Sabres did a pretty good job. They used all three of their first-round picks, all 11 of their picks in the draft, which I think surprised a lot of us here. We were expecting them maybe to move up a little bit in the middle rounds, given that they had an abundance of later picks. But they used all 11 draft picks, and I think both between you and I and analysts around the NHL, people really seem to think that the Sabres came away with a pretty good haul. They did a pretty good job in this draft. Uh, what are your immediate reactions? I know you're not a huge draft prospects guy, but did you have any thoughts before we uh, kind of get into some back and forth about it? Yeah, well, they were trying to move up and get two top 10 picks. Right. So the big news. Were, yeah, that came out on draft day that Ottawa was trying to dump Matt Murray. That situation with him is he's on a terrible contract, uh, but the Sabres have a bunch of cap room that they have to use. And to do that, they were willing to part with the seventh pick. So the Sabres would flip seven and their 16th into the seven by taking on Matt Murray's terrible contract. But like I said, it is a terrible contract because he also has a ton of leverage in deciding where he goes and vetoed Buffalo. So they were not able to make that happen. What the veto means. I mean, that could mean a bunch of things on an individual level. Maybe he just doesn't want to come here. Who knows? Maybe he wants to be in Canada. Maybe he just, I don't know. thinks our situation isn't good. Maybe he just doesn't like the city. Who knows? But I thought that was interesting I wonder what they were trying to do. They would have had seven and nine at that point. I wonder who they were targeting in addition to Savoy. Interesting to think about, yeah. but ultimately it doesn't matter because they didn't get them. Right. Uh, but yeah, so looking at the profiles of the guys they took in the first round, I like it. Anyone who watched the playoffs this year knows that hockey is becoming a super fast game. Not be- It is. It just is like fast. It's not becoming. It's like it's transformed like past tense. It is. It is done transforming. It's a it's a much faster game. And that doesn't mean that like physicality isn't important at all, but I think it's picking the, the era of being obsessed with size or being obsessed with how many hits a guy had at a lower level. Uh, if it's not over, it's over for smart teams. So I don't, I'm not worried really about the size of any of these guys. It's not like they're five, two, like they're all around five ten. They're all decent weight and they all can get bigger weight wise. Uh, so that's, that's no problem. And, they look like, you know, they're pretty fast and skilled guys. So I, I like all three of them. I understand uh, Ostland is not a favorite among a lot of people, uh, but you know, I'm not really an expert on that. So I can't say, I just like the general philosophy. 
Yeah, I completely agree. So I had tweeted out from our account that I gave the picks of Savoy and Coolidge A's and then asked them to B. Not the end of the world that they took him. So I'll, I'll kind of go through guy by guy, at least to give my thoughts on it. So Savoy, he was somebody that we've been talking about all along as a potential option, really. And looking at where he potentially could have gone, there was a very good chance that he was not going to be available at nine. He just had a very high draft pedigree and it, it would have made sense for him to go earlier than nine, given his talent level. With that being said, as we've been talking about, though, every year there's always a guy or two who end up who ends up sneaking into the top 10 and it makes everybody kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit. And then that leads to a guy or two falling into a perfect position for a team picking in that eight, nine, 10 spot. And wouldn't you know it, that happened this year with the Chicago trade where Chicago ends up acquiring Ottawa's seventh overall pick. And they took defenseman Kevin Korchinski. So not to say that this was completely out of left field because Korchinski, I think, was considered to be a top 20 prospect. But I am a bit surprised that they took him, given the fact that they had moved out two of their best young players in Kirby Doc and Alex DeBrincat. And not that Chicago really has a, a, a wellspring of talent on their uh among their blue line or their forward corps or anything like that you could really have used those picks anywhere and it would have made sense but i was surprised nonetheless that they would have taken him at seventh overall when i don't know what the disparity really is between him and then you know pretty much the next like those other d after uh nemec and and Urasek. So I think Korchinski, it was a little bit of a surprise just given that, like, is he that far off from Pavel uh, Mintikov or uh, Matejchuk, who ended up going to Columbus? Uh, I think that they all are pretty similar there. And I think that Chicago would have been smarter to go with a for one of the forwards who were available at that spot. But again, their poor decision-making is the Sabres gain. They end up getting a guy in Savoy who is uh, a pure bona fide top 10 talent he is an excellent skater with the puck on his stick. He has incredible stick handling ability. He is an excellent passer. He is going to just, he, he's able to find seams really well. He's always able to find the open guy. And, you know, again, like the big knock against him is his size, but that doesn't mean two things. One, that he can't put on some more muscle. And on top of that too, that guys who are five foot nine also can, like that doesn't mean that they can't also thrive in the NHL. As we've seen, there's been a trend towards this. And so if you have a guy who just has off the charts talent in a lot of key areas, that's going to be able to translate well. And the size really isn't going to be an issue just to give a sense to Corey Pronman, when he had done his wrap up of each team's draft class, he went through and did everybody for the Sabres for a piece for the athletic. And as far as rating his particular skills go, his skating is above NHL average, his puck skills he has is NHL average, his hockey sense though, above NHL average, his compete above NHL average, and his shot above NHL average. One of the things too that I thought was kind of neat that a lot of people were really pointing out is that if there is a player that Savoy has a, uh, a similar kind of profile to or who he reminds him of in terms of just his general style and approach, it's Danny Briere you know, where he is an extremely hard worker and he's a smaller guy. He's got a good shot, but is definitely more of a playmaker and he's not afraid to get chippy. He's not afraid to go into the corners, which is something that all of the, the hockey dads of Western New York out there who are <laughs> scheming out the ears mad that they took three guys who are all smaller. Like that's the, the, a nice trait to have though. in a smaller guy that they have that high compete level, that they're not afraid to get dirty and get into the corners and win battles. And so 
all in all, Savoy was a guy that we had been talking about for the past couple of months as uh, an A-plus option for the Sabres at nine. And I couldn't be happier with that pick. Moving on to Ostland, the reason why I gave it a B is not necessarily because of the player, because I think that Ostland, again, like he has the ability to be a really nice middle six center for them at some point, but he definitely has a ways to go in terms of adding on some muscle and some weight. He's listed as 5'10", 164 pounds, so definitely has some bulking up to do there. And on top of that, my biggest issue was just who was available on the board there. The Sabres were so, so close from getting Jonathan Lekermaki, who ended up falling to 15, but was taken by Vancouver, just one pick before them. But again, I think that it would have been a good call for the Sabres to maybe take a flyer on a guy who gives a little bit of a different profile than what Ostland, Savoy, and Coolidge all give, which are these like smaller skilled guys. Like Joaquin Kemmel was a guy that you and I had talked about a bit. I had brought up the fact that I liked him a lot. And if there was an opportunity that he ended up falling, which he really fell, ended up going the pick after us uh, 17th overall to Nashville, that he's somebody that I would have wanted to take a flyer on because of the fact that he has elite finishing ability and has a, a high end NHL caliber shot on him. And I think that that's something that, you know, you have that in the organization in Olafson and in Quinn, but that's something that we have been severely lacking for a very, very long time. And I think that you were able to get the profile of that playmaking type of guy in Savoy who projects to be a top six center easily. Um, maybe he ends up on the wing because of his size. I don't know. I think he could end up still playing center for sure. But Ostland, you know, I, I just think that you had Kemmel who went after him. I probably would have taken him there. Um, Danila Yurov ended up falling to 24. He was a guy that we had talked with Austin about. We had talked with Walt about that. There was so many connections between the Sabres and him and people thinking that he was going to go in that spot at 16. And he ended up going after Ivan Miroshchenko. So, uh, which was also very surprising. He ended up going 20th overall to Washington. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I think I would have taken, I would have taken a flyer on either of those guys ahead of Ostland. I think that's again, not to say anything with Ostland. Like I think he's going to end up, you know, he has the potential to turn out to be a really nice, like I said, middle six center for them. He's, I, I think very, from what I've read about him and just what I've watched of him, he seems very, very entrenched as being a center as compared to a wank, despite his size or uh, a wing, despite his size um, because he has a really solid two-way game as well. But again, it's not the end of the world. You know, it, it's still a good pick. They got a guy who it was pretty much taken right around where his draft position was maybe a few picks higher than people thought, but it's not something that I'm going to lose sleep over because again, he does have that potential to be a really nice two-way playmaking center for them. Um, you know, it's just going to be a while before he ends up, you know, coming over here and really getting a shot. He's, he's just got some work to do in terms of rounding out the rest of his game and really more so rounding out his body. Lastly, Coolidge, I gave an A to this pick because there was a lot of people who had thought that he was even a potential option at 16 for them. So incredible value in this pick. He gives you a little something different than what Savoy and Austin give you in that, yeah, he's still a smaller guy. Uh, you know, he's 5'11", 178, but he has an above average shot in the NHL. Pronman listed it as such as same with his compete level too. So he's more of a shooter as compared to the other guys who are a little bit more past first. And I think that Coolidge just, again, he, he gives you just something a little bit different there. And really just all I keep going back to is the value that they ended up getting and getting him at 28th overall. The, the big takeaway really from this first round is 
the board fell not only the first round, I should say like the entire draft, the board fell perfectly for the Sabres, which each of the three picks, it could have obviously went a little bit better in terms of uh, 16, assuming if Lakramaki would have ended up falling another pick and say Kemmel ended up going to Vancouver or Oslin goes to Vancouver. If they would have gotten Lakramaki with that one, I would have not had one single complaint. Um, but again, like otherwise, though, they were in a position which with each of the three picks that they were able to pick a guy that probably should not have been there relative to their peers. And I'll also say, too, they were able to take Coolidge. That's with them passing on Brad Lambert, too, which was a guy that we talked about as a possibility at 16 for them. So it, it worked out really well in terms of, you know, the placement, how the board fell. And even though I didn't love and like big air quotes on love, because again, like it, it's not the end of the world. I think Oslin is a really nice piece to have in the system. It could not have gone better in terms of the board. And I think what I'm more upset about is probably, which we can kind of transition into, which was the second round pick, which was their new goalie that they have in the system, Topias Linonen. And yeah, so yeah. I was kind of, that's something I was very interested in because it happened uh, very, very early Friday morning. Weird draft set up this year. Thursday, Friday, and it was immediate negative reaction, but I was kind of surprised in general, not about the reaction, but we talked about on the most recent pod when we were talking about the draft, I believe it was Austin that said there might not be a goalie in the top 100 this year. I think they both, both Austin and Walt said that. So that was seemingly like an expectation and he went 41. Yeah. Uh, so I should ask, was he the guy that people thought would go first, even if they thought he was going to go first much later? Yeah, I mean, he was the top ranked European goalie. So I don't think it's surprising that he went first necessarily. I think what's even more surprising is that, and I had gone back and forth to somebody on our Twitter about this, that they were expecting, okay, well, they took him. So there was going to be a run on goalies. There was only one other goalie taken in the second round, which was Nicholas Coco, who he ended up going to Seattle with the 26th pick in the second round. Um, and I believe the top ranked uh, North American goalie was Tyler Brennan. And I think, did he go in the third round? I'm pretty sure I'm checking wow. on this right now. Guy who uh, kind of pays attention to straight up Sabres, but not really telling his friend about it. Like who hosts it? Uh, I think it's Tyler and Brennan. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Actually look at that. Yeah. He didn't even go in the third round. So then let's go into the fourth round. Yep. He went in the fourth round to New Jersey. So that's really the big issue. I mean, let's, let's preface this first of all, by saying a phrase that we say often on here, everybody in the hockey world says very often goalies are voodoo. We don't <laughs> really know how goalies are going to end up when you draft them, especially like some guys who are, you know, like the higher end guys who go early, like Askarov a couple years ago to Nashville. Like those are guys that they're just so clear cut ahead of the game that it's easy to see, but especially in drafts like this, where there is no, clear cut, like first guy who sneaks into the first round somehow, it's really, really hard to predict that. So for all we know, he could end up being great. He could end up winning the Vesna someday. Who knows? You know, you, you just, you really can't project that when it comes to goalies. But again, more than Ostland, my issue with this pick was for one, you probably could have gotten him if not at your next pick, maybe not at the next pick because a goalie ended up going in that same round too, but you would have gotten then like the, your second crack at a goalie. But if, you know, you rate this guy as being that high up, then I guess, you know, go get your guy. 
But I think you maybe even could have moved some of those late round picks to try and move up your third round pick, maybe into like the end of the second round, or maybe you give up, you know, some other assets there for, for, and like next year's draft, for example, I mean, Christ, you give or uh, next year, you have three second round picks. Would it have killed you if you maybe did this year's third and a third next year and you move up like 15 spots or something like that. And then you're able to still get your guy. And Again, it, that's I say that saying, you know, they had made it, they had indicated, Kevin Adams had said that they felt that uh, Lainonen was far and away the best goalie in the draft. And so it's like, again, if you got your guy, go get him. But it's about where you're taking him and the value of the guys who are also there at that particular pick and what they in turn can add to the system. Because Taylor, there were guys who we were talking about the Sabres taking in the first round who were available at that point. Let me go through and order some of the ones. So Luca Del Bell Bellus, he ends up going three picks later to Columbus. Uh, Matthias Havlid, who is a defenseman, he ended up going the pick after that. And then the pick after that is Seamus Casey from the U.S. National Development Program. We had talked about as a potential option there in the first round. Um who else we got here? Uh, I know I'm missing somebody else uh, from that group. Yeah, Gleb Trikazov, he was somebody who we had talked about as a potential option with the second round pick there. Lane Hudson, I wanted that. I would have been happy if they would have taken him with the 28th pick. And, and that was, I think, probably Hudson um, is maybe the one, him or Casey, I would say are the ones that really hurt the most because you had the opportunity to add a really, really quality defensive piece on top of three really quality, you know, like forward pieces that you took in the first round. Like it was great. I was happy that they went forward, forward, forward in the first, but you were so well positioned to get one of the best defensemen in this draft, like a top 10 defenseman in the draft with this second round pick who actually could project to being a quality NHL puck mover. Like sure. They're maybe undersized a little bit, but you just gave up that opportunity to, to, I think it's fair to say reach on a goalie that you very well could have had with the next pick, or you could have just moved up from your third round pick to get that guy. If you really felt strongly about it. It, it, like I said, it just comes back to evaluating when you're taking that pick, who you're taking and then like what in terms of, or uh, what they are going to end up bringing to the system, like how close they could be because the pipeline for defensemen right now is, is rather thin. Like who are they going to have next year? Like Casey Fitzgerald playing in Rochester. I mean, Laxanen, we don't know. Laxanen really, it seemed like took a step back this year. Like, and what about, we, we still are unsure about Ryan Johnson. We're still on. Yeah. Right. Like he's supposed to be like some, uh, yeah. Some reports that there might be some clarity on it. Right. Right. There isn't. Yeah, exactly. And so again, you have the opportunity to take one of those guys and and really plug in a high quality puck moving defenseman into your system there. So it, it was tough. I mean, again, you don't know with goalies, who knows, maybe it'll end up working out, but I, I was admittedly very, like everybody else, like a lot of people, I was very, very disappointed that they ended up taking a goalie at that spot. But with that being said, I hope they end up proving me wrong. Yeah, I think, well, the, the, option here is is that that guy really is better than the the goalies he was being compared to that went the second and fourth round better than those guys enough that that would be a huge drop off to get one of those guys instead of him and no one really realized it in the hockey world except Kevin Adams just kind of I don't know hard to believe but I guess we'll see well and let's say this too I'll just share this from uh Pronman's piece again the one I referred to earlier 
He, uh, the background, he says, is Lainonen was a good but not spectacular junior goalie in Finland this season. He was the go-to goalie for Finland's U18 team, U18 team, but was often injured or unavailable around major tournaments outside the U18 worlds where he wasn't that good. And then the analysis, Lainonen has a clear NHL toolkit. He measures in at or above six foot four, and he's an athletic goalie who can move well in the crease. Lainonen has the ability to make very tough saves and ones that will translate to the NHL. I think he sees the game well and makes good reads, but his consistency is an issue. He lets in too many soft goals and has occasional stretches of bad decision-making. He looks like a starter, but projects more as a backup for those reasons. Mm. Um, so I love drafting a uh, guy who projects as a backup 41st overall, but I also wanted to say, I just looked and there were, I think 19 goalies taken overall, which means that there is a huge run between, fifth and seventh rounds now considering the sabers had so many picks and the whole goalies are voodoo thing that uh everyone seems to agree on the better to take two goalies late i mean look how many goalies end up they get yeah. taken late end up being good to great or even better nhl players like absolutely for example ryan miller and henrik lundquist are the first two that come to mind yeah of course absolutely and that and that really is what it goes back to is that you have more of a sure thing I shouldn't say that because there's really no such sure thing when you're drafting outside of like the top three for the most top five for the most part, but like you have a guy who has a better chance of being uh, an every night NHL or in Casey or in Hudson, one of those guys than you do in, in Lyonin. So we'll see what ends up happening. Um, but to segue out of that though, as I was talking before about them, you know, maybe using that 16th pick on a guy who was more of a, a shooter type boy. Oh boy. Did they end up doing that in the third round as they picked up with the 74th pick Victor Nuchev, who is from Russia. So again, the Sabres are adding another Russian into their midst. And uh, this guy is a hell of a shooter. Pronman lists his shot as high end, which is the, the highest ranking that he gives in terms of, um, some of the qualities that I was going through there before between skating, puffs, skills, hockey sense, compete, and shot. Um, so going into some of the background there, he's six foot two. He's got great hands. Offensive creativity is totally there. And he's got a great toolkit. And I think that this was another pick that was so great because of what a value pick it was getting this guy in the third round with that 74th pick. I mean, he very well could have been a second overall pick there or a second round pick, excuse me. And just to give a little bit of other background on him too, I believe he scored 40 goals last year in the MHL, which is the league right below the KHL. And uh, again, I mean, what more can you say about that? Like a, a pure goal scorer, really high quality shot there, like an elite shot. Um, so yeah, I was really happy with that pick. I, you know, I admittedly like don't know a ton, but after like about him, but after doing a little bit more research after the pick was made, really, really happy with that one. So looking at the the draft history, this has been an interesting strategy. I guess I would say it, it, I, it's hard to say Kevin Adams has done a good job so far. Cause you don't actually know what these picks are. The Sabres had a lot of picks between 2012 and 2014, and a lot of those guys uh, are not in the NHL. But 11 picks two years in a row, 22 guys entering the pipeline at the, within within a year, basically. Mm-hmm. It was just over or just under a year ago that last year's draft was held. So that's 22 guys. Uh, for reference, Adams, he took over, what, two months before the, the 2020 draft? Mm-hmm. I mean, he... He had no say in how many picks they were going to have in that draft, and that was bleak. They only had five picks, two of which were seventh-rounders, one was a fifth-rounder. They had 11 picks in between 2019 and 2020 in two years. Yep. And 
between 2017 and 2020, they only had 23 total picks. So they basically had the same amount and probably better value in terms of first and second round picks in the in two years than they did in the previous four. So the pipeline is deep. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what you think of uh, what's in it, our friend Kevin at NT Rider, very knowledgeable guy, uh, he talked about this on a recent podcast, but he also tweeted about it. That he thinks it's as deep as it's ever been. And there's so many guys, like there's guys that like, for example, we're really excited about if you count power still being in there, Levi, guys like that, that are like high end, super exciting, all that stuff. Paterka, Savoy Paterka, now. Quinn, um, Savoy now. Yeah. But then there's like 20 guys that at least have a plausible chance to be NHLers. And that means that, you know, likely a decent amount of them will be NHLers. That's, that's a great thing. We don't, we don't know about all these guys yet, like Otsland or Coolidge or Paul Tapov or Kisikoff, but like the Sabres picked in the top three rounds, I think what, what Brandon, 12 times the last two years. Yeah. They have 12 top 100 picks. That's great. I, you, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Like things could always go wrong, but that's, it's nice to have that kind of depth. Uh, totally. I think that, I think that's most of our thoughts on the draft, unless you have anything else. To I add. wanted to give a, one other thing on Nuchev here that I think is really great. And I, I just remembered this too, that uh, Fortin had said this in his presser, not while he was crying. It was uh, when he was uh, at another composed point, which we could talk about that after. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I don't know if you saw that video or not, but I thought it was actually kind of cool, but yeah, uh, the Sabres analytics staff, ended up giving Nuchev going into this draft a first round grade and thought that he was the third best Russian in the draft. Like not just really like, that's not saying like him or at like the analytics team had him at a first round grade and they ended up wow. getting him 74th overall. So big ups to them on that one. I mean, yeah, he had again, 40 goals in 61 games last year in the MHL and really it's just a shot. And again, like, you took skilled playmakers with your first three picks. I'm really glad that they switched it up and went for a high end, just finisher, uh, you know, with their next, with their next player pick. Um, the only other one I'll say too, that I, I figure is worth bringing up is their fourth round pick, which was Matt's Lindgren, because I have seen people who have been a pretty big fan of his too. left-handed defenseman out of the WHL. Pronman gives him uh, average ratings for his skating puck skills and compete and an above average rating for his hockey sense. So he's a, a pure offensive player. I believe he had something like, uh, I think he had 40 points as a rookie in the WHL last year, which again, like that is no joke um, of the, uh, you know, the, o or the CHL leagues like Lindgren or um, the WHL is, is believed to be by many the most competitive of them. And so I, I think it's great going after a guy again, who has that kind of, scoring ability point production ability for being a defenseman and, and doing so at such a young age so i'm excited to see how he turns out too i was very excited to see how you know excited people were about him um oh i have it here yeah he had he put up 44 points in 68 games last year not bad wow yeah also respect too. He, 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 i also appreciate too his uh in his press conference after he was drafted he had said that his priority or his goal is that he wants to win the Norris trophy someday, which is like you get drafted in the fourth round and you're like, I want to win the Norris. Like that's the kind of confidence I like. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, all in all, I, I was really happy with the Sabres draft. I think the, the big takeaway for me looking at this draft and looking at 
you know, all of the drafts under the Adams regime and really since they've kind of constructed this front office is that they're going after high skill guys. Like that's what you need. They're not really going after these safe picks anymore. They want guys who are going to add a lot of skill into the system. And they did that with pretty much almost all of their picks. So all around two thumbs up from me uh, for the Sabres draft for this year. And I can't wait until next year when it'll be easy and they end up just missing the playoffs and magically win the lottery. And we have Connor Bedard as our first line center in the 2023, 2024 season. You heard it here first (laughs) folks. You heard it here first. Sure. Uh, So up from 15 to, to one. Is that allowed? No, (laughs) no, it's not. It's not. (laughs) I honestly don't think the Sabres can have a year that isn't super disappointing. Well, if they finished 11th, like they had the 11th worst record and it was like kind of close. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not going to worry about Connor Bedard. That's he's going to be on a different team. And next year's draft is so deep too, that like, even if they don't make the playoffs and say they end up even moving up who know? I mean, even if they are stuck, say at like 15 or 16, like where they took like the Vegas pick this year, you're still going to get a really, really good guy out of that draft. I, I admittedly like have done only some research on like the top, five to 10 in the draft, but from the many smart people that there are who cover and do draft stuff, 2023, 24 first round is stupid. Like it's 2015 level. Good. That's what I was going to say, actually, because 2015, if you look at it, yeah, you were a middling team. You didn't get into the Eichel McDavid sweepstakes, but on one hand, you avoided Dylan Strom and Noah Hannafin, and you might've gotten Miko Rantanen or by Matthew Barzell. Or Sebastian Ajo, right? Yeah. Or, hey, even Jake DeBrusque. Jake DeBrusque. Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) Philly Um, got Travis Konechny at 24. Vancouver got Brock Besser at 23. Uh, Joel Erickson-Eck went 20 to Minnesota. Thomas Jabot went 18 to Ottawa. Kyle Connor went 17 to Winnipeg. Barzell, 16. Won't talk about three picks. Well, can you imagine having three picks in the middle of a first round like that? Oh my God. Barzell, Connor and Chabot. Yeah. It's, Oh yeah. It's crazy. And then Can you imagine if a team had three straight picks, they would probably win the Stanley cup within two years. I know. Can you imagine, like say you had like the three picks right before those three picks and you had the opportunity to take those guys. That would be something. It'd be a real shame if that ever happened to a team at some point in history, particularly in this draft. And they narrowly missed out on a Stanley cup four years later. Mm. Can you imagine? And now they're probably not going to win one on the Sarah. Anyway, before we get to more Sabres news, uh, let's hear from our sponsors at DraftKings. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right. Make your first bet to up to $1,000. If it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash it. You can throw down on all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over-unders, and prop bets, your betting options feel endless. So this is the time when I, I talk to you about an interesting uh, bet that might be coming up. You know what I think? Bet on the American League in the All-Star game because they have about a half dozen oh. Yankees. Some of the, the most well-known names in America, like Clay Holmes, Nestor Cortez, <laughs> Jose Trevino, they'll all be there, and they're going to kick the NL's ass like they usually do. Um, and best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. 
and you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code THPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details and responsible gambling resources. So real quick, I guess this is still a draft thing. The Jerry Fortin thing. Uh, it is a nice thing because I think it says a lot about the Kevin Adams is uh, building a good culture, even in the front office. He seems like a great guy to work for, but that's great. I mean, it, that doesn't win you by itself, but it's a, it's a good thing. It frankly seems like a good thing compared to the last couple administrations. Well, and, Fort, uh, and Jerry Ford was there the for all. Of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I do. He doesn't I, have to come out and say it. I know what he means. Oh yeah. I mean, and I, I appreciate that so much. It's like, it's one thing. Obviously, when you make a hire like that, like you want to make sure that you're hiring somebody who has credibility is going to be good at the job. And that was something that coming into it, Adams, none of us really thought that he had. I mean, his background was on the business ops side. It wasn't anything to do with like hockey, like the hockey department. And so, of course, people are going to go into that being very worried, concerned, whatever word you want to use. Like nobody was really confident after they made that hire. And to see now where we're at only a few years later that you have a grown ass man coming to tears because of your leadership ability. I mean, that's awesome. And I think it also speaks to the fact that just in general, like when you listen to Adam's talk, I know we've ragged in the past about like the bullshit with like, Oh, we want guys who want to play here. And it's like, well, winning makes people want to play here, but yeah, Adam's by and large, like I listen to him talk and just how he carries himself and just generally speaking his approach. And it's just like, he's a guy who you want to root for. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Like he's a a very, very easy personality to root for. He just seems like a genuinely good dude. And I think there's something to be said for that. You know, like Ralph Kruger seemed like he was like a a Nickelodeon supervillain from when we were growing up. Whereas this dude, like Kevin Adams, I mean, you know, just talking about other guys, obviously Kruger was the coach, but like, you know what I mean? It's just like the personalities that you have. Well, Kruger had a lot of power. And the, right, exactly. (laughs) Like in these leadership positions, like you want to have not only somebody who's smart, which Kruger really didn't have. And same just could be said for Jason Botterill and probably Tim Murray too, but like just making sure that the personality is there and that you have somebody that is a leader and that people want to follow and people want to go to work for every day. And the fact that that seems to be that way it just speaks volumes to Adams and what he's been able to do to turn around this organization. So shout out there for sure to Kevin Adams. So we uh, recorded later than we wanted to today, which is actually not being a good thing because we got some Sabres news in right before we started, which is Jacob Bryson resigned. And I believe it's two years for 1.85 million per year. It's a great deal. Good deal for a guy that'll probably be on their third pairing this year. Got him in pretty cheap. Uh, which is going to be interesting because I looked at that and I said, okay, so they have five defensemen that I think are hundred percent for sure on the team next year, but who knows things can change. I think the guys I have under contract power, Darlene, Yoki, Haru, Samuelson, Bryson. Is that five? Yeah. So all, those are the five guys and they have 11 forwards under contract already. Uh, it doesn't look like they're going to be that busy this Wednesday when free agency opens. They have, like we mentioned the 11 forwards before and they have Olofsson as an RFA and R2 roots line as an RFA. And then beyond that, Paterka could be someone that could come up as well. Paterka is not one of the guys I have listed. I don't think he's a lock to make the NHL next year, but 
it's a possibility that he is I, if, he, if he plays well enough. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about this before, but right now we have Skinner, Oposo, Tuck, Casey, Gus, Sam Gus, that is, Bjork, Tage, Cousins, Krebs, Asplund, Quinn as 11 guys. And if they re-sign Olofsson and don't trade him, that's 12. If they want Paterka there, that's 13. So any free agent fours that are rumored to be in on, which mean that there's other moves to be made, which I think we both think is Bjork being gone. Yeah. Uh, and then that leads me to believe that if they, they might be looking at someone for forward, who knows? I would say without, you know, having any real insider knowledge, my only predictions for free agency are rumors start to heat up in the following 48 hours after we record this. Uh, then we'll have a better idea of what might happen. And then the other things are they'll trade for a goalie and or sign a goalie. I guess we'll see. Uh, Huso and Vanacek appear to be off the table. And then after that, they'll have someone to, you know, that they have to match up with power. Wow. Someone, someone to pair with power. And that leads me to believe one of those guys has to be expensive because they are not really close to the cap floor right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the goalie situation now is major, a major, major concern, even more than it already was because the other news out of the weekend that we didn't talk about. Somebody who we both thought could have been a really, really good fit for the Sabres for this year, Braden Holtby, is not going to play next year, and it's seeming like he's probably going to retire. So the along with the guys that you mentioned that are now off the table, with Huso going to the Red Wings there as well, um, you know, we'll see where Darcy Kemper ends up. But, like, is he really going to choose to come here even if we throw a boatload of cash at him instead of going to a contender where he could try and compete for a cup again? So with that being said, I mean – your main options, you know, Joe Marino from uh, the Charging Buffalo, he had tweeted about this actually uh, yesterday, and he said that their realistic options, assuming that Campbell and Kemper aren't coming to Buffalo, include Eric Comrie, Thomas Grice, who you had brought up before as an option, Martin Jones, yuck, former Sabre, Yaroslav Halak, David Riddich. Wait, 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 wait. Is Halak in the NHL still? Yeah. He, I, he played last Vancouver. year. He was backing up for Vancouver. Oh, that explains it. I didn't see a lot of Vancouver um, last year. And then from the trade front, James Reimer and Aiden Odenhill, whatever his first name is, from San Jose. So not a lot of great options there. Uh, I would say my favorite ones are probably Comrie because you're really hoping that he's able to show out more in a, in a potential starting role, and he's the youngest of that bunch. Um, I, I guess same could be said for, for Aiden Hill as he, I think is only 25 or 26 as well. I think if not Comrie, uh, which I, I would hope would be, if they're going to go the UFA route that they go with him, it kind of feels like James Reimer, like making a move for him or one of the San Jose goalies is potentially going to be a thing. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't want Reimer. I, he was, okay early on last year but then he very quickly came back down to earth and so it's not good now like we we could be facing another situation like last year but regardless like they can't bring back Dustin Tokarski and or roll out Anderson and UPL together like they're gonna have to do something and barring them coming out of nowhere and making a trade for somebody that we haven't been talking about or hasn't been speculated necessarily I'm concerned what is your level of concern one to ten uh, like seven. Okay. It, it could easily jump to 10 though, in the next few days, if some of these trades keep happening and we're not involved, it's a, uh, it's interesting. The capitals trade, the Vanacek trade where they were just like, yeah, we would have traded either of them. It's like, Hmm, it's not inspiring. Yeah. 
but that also makes me think they're kind of on the market for someone to start over Samsonov. If they're saying something like that, I've seen Kemper even connected to them. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Wait, I would love. Is Samsonov available then? I mean, probably maybe not. Maybe he's their but... backup in that case. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Cause they did with moving Vanacek and everything, but who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe we could just like send Craig Anderson back and we'll take Samsonov off their hands, you know, go with the veteran presence in that Washington. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> it, it is. It's, I don't know. Is there other moves to be made? You think like, for example, like Jack Campbell, I think that it's going to just come back to term. Like that's going to be the problem is that Adams, it, it feels like he doesn't want to go more than like two or three years on a guy. And Campbell is probably going to want four. I mean, I wouldn't go more than four with Campbell to be completely honest with you, but, and I, I even think four is pushing it to there. Um, yeah. I, but, yeah I don't, but somebody's going to ask. I don't know. But that's the thing is that somebody will probably give him that. If, if it gets to the point where maybe he's not off the board in the first couple of days, then maybe the Sabres like will circle back and see, and they just give him a ton of money up front and do like a two-year deal or something like that and just pay him out the ass. But I don't know. I mean, again, I, and I, and I also just go back to like, it doesn't matter how much money you can give them is the disparity of the money that the Sabres can give going to outweigh them wanting to play for a contender right now. Like Kemper just won the cup. Like I doubt he's going to want to go from Arizona to winning the cup to going back to a team in a similar spot as Arizona. Yeah. You mean like coming here in that case? Yes. Yeah, no, I, that does make sense. Uh, would we be worried that Jack Campbell is 30 and he's played 150 NHL games? 135 NHL games. Sure. Absolutely. That's, that's that doesn't scream long-term contract to me. I get that, but slim pickings at this point. And you have, what about Nettle Jokic? What's that? What about Nettle Jokic? Well, and he's interesting because you got to think now, I mean, they, you don't just, trade for Huso like that and think that it's going to be like a timeshare or anything. So, Hey, I, w- I would go after him if it's possible. I mean, he didn't have the best year last year, but he's two years removed from that great run with Carolina. He's still young. So why not? Hmm. Interesting. Lots to think I'm about into that. He maybe might be, he might be my favorite option, honestly. Now. All right. Here's one. You're going to hate. Give me it. Bavarovsky. I do hate that. You're right. <laughs> All right. Fair yeah. enough. He's got like what? Five years left. Something like that. Do you not hate left? it? Well, it's, I'm willing to entertain it. Uh, Cause he was pretty good this year, but he also wasn't very good at all the last two years. And he's in his thirties. And let me see how long is his contract? Yep. Uh, he's let's see. Wow. Uh, he has four years left. The money doesn't bother me so much. Yeah. He's 33. He'll be 34 when the season starts. So that would be his 34 through age 37 seasons Oof. with a $10 Pass. million dollar cap hit. Pass. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. But maybe they retained some, but that, I think I got retained for that long. That seems crazy. Yeah. I was just kicking it out there. I don't really know about that's... it. I mean, if things get desperate enough, maybe you, you do that and maybe try to eat the last year, maybe try to send them down the last year. I don't know. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Looking at this now, yeah, I don't know. Here, this is the big problem. He the two years before this, he was fifty games played, nine hundred save percentage. Thirty-one games played, nine oh six. This year he was good. He was at nine thirteen. That's above league average. 
not any kind of, you know, I was going to say no all-star. He was in the all-star game, but not like, not anything that would blow you away. He wasn't getting best votes or anything like that. I don't know. There's a bunch of guys I would call and ask about. I would like, I would try to see if Chris Dreiger's available. Yeah, he's interesting. I mean, he was, the, both of the Seattle goalies sucked last year, but. Ooh, they did. Actually, Dreiger's, that's the thing. He's barely played any games and he wasn't good for last year, which was like one of his big chances. So I don't know about him. Hmm. Frustrating. Yeah. Who knows? And like you said, hopefully we'll have by Thursday's episode, we'll have a little bit more insight on who the Sabres might be targeting. But I mean, aside from goalie, anyone else stick out to you in free agency? I know we've talked about Subban. Our, our pals from Expected Buffalo really love the idea of bringing Subban in. Anybody else sound interesting to you from the UFA market, Taylor? Did, did I make this up to Colorado re-up with Manson? Manson, sorry. Uh, he gonna be did Colorado re-sign Senator Joe Manson, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I didn't see that. I don't know if that's the case. That was my thought throughout the playoffs because his handedness works steady guy. He won't cost a ton of money. They can kind of overpay him a little bit on like a four or five year deal. Maybe he wants to, now that he's won a cup, you'd be fine coming to Buffalo and, and playing with, with power. I mean, that's a great opportunity to be known as like a guy that can play with young guys at that little take you through. Uh, later in your career and maybe you shouldn't be getting paid if you're thought of as a a, a mentor veteran type guy yeah he's good so i don't think that they did no the, the latest i'm seeing pierre lebrun has that his agent met with um avs brass in montreal during the draft and they have expressed a desire and trying and bring him back but we just don't know if it's possible i mean like they it's just going to be too hard. They just signed Georgia for, you know, I think uh, three years, 3 million per something like that. 3.2 per something along those lines, um, you know, and you're going to have to make tough decisions too, when it comes to Kadri, Burakovsky, Nishkinen. Yeah. I think they probably are going to prioritize bringing back Nishkinen ahead of bringing back Manson. Right. I mean, a hundred percent. I would definitely, of course. And, that's, that's and Burakovsky, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what did they actually, resign? Did they resign Cagliano? I thought they resigned someone. Um, I don't know. I don't believe him. But hey, Burakovsky's another guy who the Sabres were recently linked to by the fourth period. So hell, if you could bring him in and get him in your top nine, count me in. I'm all about that. You know, whatever you got to do, like if you could bring in a guy like that who has really flourished these past few years. I mean, he has a cup now and has come into his own as a player after trying to really find Doesn't his he have two cups? Washington. I think you're right, actually. He does, yeah, because he did win that one with Washington. Wow. Yeah, so I'm all about bringing in Burakovsky if it's possible. Um, I think he makes the most sense on the forward side of things because, again, like you really don't – there other than maybe also Mason Marshment, who is also tied to the Sabres through the fourth period, um, I, I don't have much of a desire for them to bring in anybody to play in the bottom six because they already have guys to do that, you know? And so it's like, yeah. you're just taking up roster spots at that point and, and blocking guys who are more than capable of being here. So that's really what makes sense. I mean, who knows? I, I feel like in any situation, the best move forward for them, if they're trying to make a drastic upgrade to their top four on the right side or to the forward group, do it through a trade. My, my hope for free agency is that via whatever they do with goaltending, defense, 
and the forward group, whether it's bringing in one forward, however you handle Olofsson, all I want is that they don't have to make a Johnny Boychuk, Boychuk type trade. Now they already have, they already have Bishop, but I yep. mean, if they have to do a second one, I think that doesn't bode well for the talent they got. And that would make next year a little bit less interesting, still pretty interesting, but right. I wouldn't really have, if they didn't, if they don't bring an oppressive defenseman and goalie, I don't have much hope that there's, you know, that, that whatever, 10% uh, chance they make the playoffs, make it interesting, have the best year they've had since 2012. I don't know, but yeah, that's, that's yeah. my main hope that you have yeah. guys worth paying and not overpaying. So I think that's all the hockey stuff we have. Is that, is that correct, Brendan? I would say so. I can't really think of anything else at this point. I'm so sure we'll have lots to talk about on Thursday though. Oh yeah. So for a recommendation this week, so pitch this to Brennan last week. So I saw Elvis, the, the Baz Luhrmann biopic that came out uh, recently and I don't want to recommend it. See it if you want, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's definitely not bad. It's, but it, it's not worthy. Of, I, I think there's a high standard to be recommended by me on straight up savers and that does it doesn't quite meet it but so we we thought of this you know music biopics have gotten a lot of grief over the past few years deservedly so for being formulaic for sometimes being inaccurate so for being unoriginal so i thought we could each uh give out some music biopics we want to see that we think could be break the mold and be more original than some other ones yeah no i like that you want to go first sure i'll go with my my first one i didn't rank these in any way but here's one uh, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. Uh, this wouldn't be something that I'd want to see now, maybe more in like 15 years or something like that. But I think Kendrick's interesting in a lot of ways. First of all, this is the only one on here that qualifies under, I would just want, I would just really want to watch something like that because I like him so much. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it'll be interesting to see him break in. He comes in, he's a, he's a mixtape guy. He's not young though when he, when he breaks in. He's older than you would expect. Like he's, He's like 20, well, he's 22 or so when Section 80 happens. But when he hits with like Mad City, he's like 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And then it, Good Kid, Bad City is well-reviewed, does not win a Grammy. And then he has a wild performance with like Imagine Dragons. Then he's like on every feature. You have Control. You have uh, Pimp a Butterfly, Untitled, Unmastered, which actually before it's to Pimp a Butterfly damn and then the black panther soundtrack and he just goes away for like four years like barely tours is i know COVID happens as well but like mm-hmm. does not release during COVID. takes forever to release this other one and he's just an interesting guy in general like he said before he doesn't drink or smoke weed i don't know if this is a kendrick the character thing versus kendrick the person but like it seems like he feels guilty about killing someone Mm-hmm. He's mentioned in multiple songs. Who knows if that's real or not? I'd maybe explore that and kind of get into some other things. Like he's the only rapper I've ever seen who did a diss track about themselves. The song you on yeah. the butterfly, which was juxtaposed to the song I, which was a huge, huge hit, which he did win a Grammy. A Grammy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to explore in there. Like he's from Compton. He's a, He's a huge Tupac guy, obviously, but like it's the end of a, a great musical biopic. One of the only ones I really liked in the past decade uh, was Straight Outta Compton. And the end of Straight Outta Compton is the song Straight Outta Compton playing over the many accomplishments and then the, me- the, the, the legacy they left of NWA. So that's like Snoop, Tupac, like Dre becoming a billionaire when Beats sell to Apple, uh, 
Jimmy Iovine, obviously. I don't know if they even mentioned him. And then eventually, like Eminem, 50 Cent, and Kendrick mm-hmm. all in some ways exist because of them. So when I saw that, I started to think of it like a couple years later, like that could almost be like a, it's not what it's meant to be, but like an MCU post credits type thing. Like <laughs> here's what you look forward next in the world of music biopics. But yeah, Kendrick, I just think is an interesting guy. I have no idea what how how the story would go or what tack they would take. But like I said, it's something they do in the future. So we'll see where the rest of his career goes. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Did you want to go back and forth or do you want to? Yeah, no, you do what your first one. All right. So same thing. I, this isn't in order, but I think I have some pretty good ones here. I actually have six altogether, but I think you could do it on one person, but I'm just going to generally speaking, do a band Fleetwood Mac, I think is just makes too much sense to do one. You have, how has it not happened? I know it's like all of the inner band drama. Everybody's fucking everybody. Like I, I mean, they've been, the, the lineup has shifted too, especially in the past, like 10, 50, I shouldn't say that probably the past, like 30 years or whatever, like constantly people coming out or like leaving the band, coming back in. Isn't um, it more than 30? Isn't it like 45 years now? Whatever. Well, well, no, because they were, they were intact with like the, the five, um, like the core five from like the rumors era that was like through the seventies, right? Yeah, well, the seventies ended forty-two years ago. In the, well, then into the eighties, then right? Oh, okay. I don't, I don't really know the timeline, but well, either way, regardless of that, I think that it makes too much sense where you can have it start off because, as you know, many people know too, like Fleetwood Mac did not start off with the, the lineup that we all know it as, with you know Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie, um, Lindsey Buckingham, and the music was very different as well, and so. I think being able to have a movie where it starts off maybe towards the end of the, like the first iteration of Fleetwood Mac, which was way more like rocking and then moving into slowly bringing in like the rest of the, the group, like I said, with, you know, um, like Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie coming into the fold. I, and then again, just the, the inner band drama with that would be so fascinating. So that I, I have Fleetwood Mac very high up my list. Yeah. So that, I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, you'd have to mention how many times Lindsey Buckingham got bumped from What Up With That. Yes. It's a huge tragedy in his life. Also, I think they're interesting because a lot of bands throughout the years don't end up liking each other. That feels like most bands that make it big. But that's always spun as like they succeeded despite their turmoil and their issues with each other. Whereas it felt like Fleetwood Mac did like its best work because of the turmoil, like <laughs> yeah, the turmoil fueled so like true. how good they were, how good it was. So like true. a lot of their songs, they're like, "Man, I hate this fucking person." Not exactly that, but like this person hurt me, or this person sucks, or whatever. Like about heartache, or or things like that, or cheating relationships, all this shit. It was like not about someone out in the world. It's about yeah. a different person that's playing the song with them. The person that's standing so next wild. to them on stage. <laughs> yeah, I just really don't understand how that hasn't been one yet. Um, so before I get to my next one, I want to mention. Another thing that I thought would be kind of cinematic is that Kendrick claims that um, Tupac as a ghost appeared at the end of his bed when he was like younger and like told him that he needed to, I don't know, save hip hop or he was going to be famous or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what he claims to have said. That sounds like a dream to me, but. Well, and that's at the end of To Pimp a Butterfly, the the last track, it's that the second half of it is him and having a conversation, quote unquote, conversation that he added it together, obviously, with Tupac. No, I think that they actually did that in the studio, but. Yeah, well, (laughs) wherever Tupac's living these days. Yeah, you never know. All right, so my second one is Eminem. Okay. Uh, And I think 
one of the big problems music biopics run into is they all feel the need to extend through a gigantic period of time. Elvis didn't have as much of a problem with that. Uh, it's still a long period of time, but like most of his childhood skips. So it's, he gets famous in like 54, 55 range. And then spoiler alert, he died in 1977. So that's kind of the end of that. It's not that big of a range compared to some other ones that we've seen, but it's still, it's tough to have such a huge time range. So the Eminem one, I don't know exactly when it would end. I don't know if there's an actual end point, but what I want to see with Eminem is like a, a forgotten time, the late nineties, when he went from being a nobody to being like as big as any star in the world. He was the best-selling rapper ever, which is kind of embarrassing. Um, but there would be like, oh, you know, 20,000 people pack a stadium to see a show Wait. five nights in a row. Taylor, what? Are we just ignoring Eight Mile? Yeah, I'm gonna. T- I'm gonna get to that. Oh, okay. Uh, and then you have like a billion people. You know, not a billion, but you have thousands of people outside the show protesting the show. Like 1999, Eminem was no one in the world was more hated by moms hmm. in America. Like this yeah. guy was super controversial, and when award shows happen, he was a huge liability. Yeah, of like, course. Like, he freaked out famously and hit Triumph, the insult dog. And there's a whole thing with Moby at one point. And there was like, he had to apologize, I think, at the next VMAs. There's there's a bunch of other things too. Like he hated the, his contemporaries. Like he hated like Britney Spears. Yeah. He like, I think he threatened to kill either her or Christina Aguilera via song. I think it was Britney Spears. Yeah, now that I think about it. A bunch of weird stuff like that. Like he's kind of insane. So this isn't someone I'm saying I love. So you're saying like, 8 Mile Kendrick. being like the prequel. Yeah, it's also not exactly a biopic. Well, yeah. It's kind of a story loosely based. Yeah, loosely based on his life. I get it. It's, it's pretty close to his life, but it's not that. And also. So kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, seriously. This is more about when he's actually famous. Because 8 Mile, at the end of 8 Mile, doesn't he just go back to work? Like he wins a rap battle and he's like, all right, I got to go work at the I don't even factory. know. I honestly haven't seen that movie in so long. Another guy that wasn't super young when he got famous. He's married with a kid, famously. That's the other thing. He had a wife. He had his whole song where he threatened to kill his wife. So I'm saying mm-hmm. this is not someone that I admire, especially how he behaved in that era, but someone wow, I think Taylor, would be really you're interesting. You're condoning people, chaining people to beds and setting houses on fire? That's that's pretty mature, man. I am not condoning that song at all. That is The movie will be have been over for years by the time that song came out. <laughs> um, so I don't know where your end point is. I think he, he doesn't go to rehab until later in his career. So maybe just do a kind of quick fast forward. And some kind of ending there. I don't want him to be rapping in a parking garage about Donald Trump. I don't want that to be in there. <laughs> but like sometime, like it's just a few years. Like most movies, the height of he's like the most famous guy in the world as a rapper from a trailer park in Detroit. Mm, mm. All right, I like that. That could be a that would be a really entertaining one to see. Like especially now that you're mentioning all of the drama with like the award show stuff. Yeah, that was a. Uh... That was a thing for a while. Yeah, seriously. It was, I remember he, I think it was like the, the one VMAs, he won like four or five, or he won the most awards for, I think, the Marshall Mathers LP. And I think it's a 2001 one. And he went up on stage and he was so calm. And he was like, I'm sorry, I went to anger management. But like, yeah, more stuff happened after that, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, my next one, I'm going to do another uh, another classic throwback one here. I would love to see, and this one I want to go with a specific person rather than the band, even though the band would work too. I want to Keith Richards one because if there is Ooh, one, I almost did that. If there is one celebrity who 
I shouldn't even say celebrity. One person in this world that I believe to be indestructible in the way that Superman is, where this man is just never going to die. It's Keith Richards. I read his autobiography and I'm not like a huge Stones fan. I like the Stones. I'm a Beatle. I'm more Beatles than Stones as everybody knows, but like, I like the Stones. I have an appreciation for them. His autobiography was batshit crazy. He has done, I think, probably just about every drug in existence. And between the 60s and 70s was on the receiving end of numerous drug busts. He's been tried on drug-related charges, I believe, five times between like 1963 and 1977. Uh, Just a fascinating dude who has done and lived life at he's done everything and lives life at a hundred miles per hour and is somehow still going and still playing music like the dude should not be alive right now for all the shit that he's gotten into over his life and so give me that on screen just like two and a half hours of keith richards being really chaotic while the stones are making great music and there's a lot of really other interesting stuff too that could be woven in there too especially like you know the stone stuff like brian jones passing away too um, cause that was such a huge transformative part of the stones uh, when, when he had died. And so, yeah, I, I'd be all about a Keith Richards one. Just, just give me that chaos for two and a half hours and I will sit back and enjoy very, very much. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically, uh, the most, probably if we just did like this as a poll, that would probably be the most requested one, right? Like I think Keith that Richards would- one. I, I think people really would let, want to see the Fleetwood Mac one just because of all the oh, drama. Yeah, that's true. All right, who do you got um, for this one? Pantera. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't expecting just, you to drop that. Give me a, what, why is that? I mean, it would be very sad, obviously. Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, I'm not even a huge Pantera guy. I know a couple of their songs, but. You don't strike me as one. No. Although I'm kind of liking metal more now that I guess I'm getting older. Mm. Um, so. They were big in the 80s and 90s, the kind of the peak of metal era, early 2000s, like every band <laughs> we've uh, mentioned and every band in history that's had success. They had some turmoil and uh, they broke up more or less. And if, if you there's there's some like documentaries about this. And I think there's like a behind the music and stuff that kind of uh, like touch on this, like the kind of the uh, the drama that was going on. But the long and short of it is, like most bands uh, in in history and all pretty much all successful ones, they ran into some turmoil in the early 2000s and broke up. I think it was uh, Phil Anselmo that he wanted to go solo and wanted to you know have his own career. Uh, so they break up, and Dimebag Daryl, one of their members, among other members, founds another band called Damage Plan, and they're playing at a small venue in 2004. When a fan, maybe even Selmo, maybe of someone who was just really distraught that Pantera broke up, uh, brought a gun to the venue and went on stage and shot Dimebag Daryl to death. And, and some other people who tried to step in also shot them to death and shot other people who ended up living. We were technically mass shooting, shot like eight people total. Jesus. And yeah, I just don't think there's a parallel in American history to that. Like there's a whole, I'm sure like most bands, like you could do the regular bio thing. There's, you know, drug addiction they're nobodies and then they're super famous there's all that stuff but like it ends in such a, a shocking and tragic way that i don't think any of those guys are ever the same mm. damn that's crazy i i knew the the gist of the story like the stuff with like dimebag Daryls. i didn't realize that it was like that 
many people had died at that though too yeah i think it's like four people that died and four people that were injured but if i remember correctly one of the guys that was injured is like very severely injured holy shit wow all right that would damn that that would be a good one then this geez all right my next one i have a band that is very near and dear to my heart that is wildly entertaining probably if just as much if not more off stage than they are on oasis I think an Oasis music biop would be insane. For those of you who may not be familiar, so the the core of Oasis is their lead singer and lead guitarist, the Gallagher brothers, Liam and Noel Gallagher. And throughout the 90s, just constantly feuding with each other, they both just have such in-your-face personalities. And so they would constantly be fighting with each other verbally, physically all of that many instances even on stage at certain points too or backstage before concerts really really crazy there's so much you'd be able to go into there with just like for one I mean I'm talking about all the non-music stuff but like they put out two of the best albums of the 90s and definitely maybe in what's the story morning glory their concert that they did in 1990 I believe it was 96 at Nebworth was one of the biggest concerts at the time it may have been the biggest concert in the history of the UK Um, for the concert I believe it was something crazy like three percent of the population had requested to get tickets for it which like I know 3% is like a lower number, but when you're talking about uh, of an entire country uh, requesting to get tickets to a concert, it is just bananas. Like to think about that. Um, There's their feud that they had with blur, which was like very, 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 or uh, very widely covered throughout the press. And then ultimately they end up breaking out or breaking up in 2008 because the Gallagher brothers got in a literal fist fight backstage. And after many times of threatening to quit over the years, Noel Gallagher officially once and for all ended up quitting the band. I mean, just so entertaining. Like if you watch, like go back and watch any interviews of them, like back in the nineties and stuff, these dudes are just out of their minds. Like really funny too, if we're being honest, like just angry British dudes who have ridiculous senses of humor. Like, top to bottom that would be such an entertaining one to watch just to see the constant fighting going on both physical and verbal yeah that would be a super interesting one yeah those guys kind of rule yeah um, <laughs> um so my next one is i don't know if it's cheating it's definitely unconventional it's but it'll be different than the other ones we've had here it's john carpenter oh okay. so i think it technically counts as a music biopic because he's a composer yeah. uh for those that know john carpenter he has an interesting life and here's the thing with this does not at all have a life that really is suited for a music biopic because even though he became a big deal he was never like the biggest deal in the world does not have a life that's like that he's not doing concerts and whatnot and i don't really know where you could go with the story but you could go a lot of places i think he's a really interesting guy so like the thing with him is like he i think he went to college in the late 60s he was like kind of making short films struggling not sure what to do makes his first feature that's like barely distributed in the mid 70s and then 76 makes assault on precinct 13 which did not do well in america commercially and it didn't do well critically either in fact it just wasn't covered by critics and the ones that did see it didn't really like it but it went to england i think it was distributed if i'm mistaken the story is a guy uh in london named michael myers uh distributed it there and it was a huge hit 
commercially and critically in England for some reason. God knows why. I don't, having watched the movie, I have no, no idea. It's about Los Angeles and crime and uh, gangs and whatnot. So that was interesting. So that happens. And then he makes, you know, a, another movie that is independent, doesn't have a lot of funding. You might have heard of it. It's called Halloween. <laughs> so that is a huge, huge hit. It's one of the biggest uh, independent film hits of all time. It was not expected. It just had, just arrived one day and it's like a huge hit. So that's, that's big, but it's not, he doesn't become the biggest name in movies. I wouldn't say uh, he's still pretty popular in the next few years after that, he's gets to make some of the best and most memorable genre films ever. He's a super genre guy with sci-fi and horror. He just off the top of my head makes uh, the fog, the thing, Halloween two, which is whatever. He produces Halloween three, which is interesting, but not great. And then famously Escape from New York. Uh, and does he just continues to work through the eighties. And here's why I think he's interesting. His contemporaries tried to like work forever. In fact, like Francis Ford Coppola making a movie next year, Scorsese has a movie coming out this year and has basically had a movie out every few years. De Palma works really a long time. And John Carpenter was just at one point like, ah, people don't like my movies as much anymore in the nineties. And I was like, whatever. He doesn't work that much. He like composes. He's been composing for the last three Halloween movies. Also weird thing kind of topical about this he produced the first elvis Elvis, he directed the first elvis biopic which Mm. was a tv movie in the late 70s that was also in that range he was very busy there's a bunch of stuff like he came up with this writing partner deborah hill uh and then she was she's hugely instrumental in how halloween turned out and they were dating at the same time and then they broke up in the middle of halloween and i don't know how much drama there was behind that but that's an interesting thing to cover and he's just generally an interesting guy like He's like one of the most openly doesn't give a shit about how he's perceived guys ever. Like he said publicly before that he doesn't miss making movies because he had to wake up early. He doesn't really like that. He said that he doesn't mind. This is before the the most recent Halloween sequels came around, but he's like, he doesn't mind that the Halloween sequels are not involving him and aren't always well received because he's just sitting on his couch and then one day a bunch of money falls into his hand. Uh, And he's also said that like most of what he does now is smoke weed and play video games with his son. So, but he also composes with the sun now when they, when he does work. So I, he's definitely different than a lot of filmmakers. And that would give you an opportunity for whoever is making this film, this biopic to do something different with it, which I think would be cool. I mean, that's, that's how you can, you know, break the mold, cover someone whose life was different than all these other guys' lives. Hell yeah. I like that a lot. That's actually really cool, Taylor. And obviously, <laughs> you know, the, the Halloween tie-ins, no shocker there that you ended up. <laughs> yeah true no, that's that's also something i should like like that's why i think he's interesting he mm-hmm. scored halloween so it's not even like it's one of the best received movies ever like director toro was he scored it it's one of the most iconic scores ever at the same time and he scored yeah. all his own movies pretty much damn i like that that's a really cool one all right nice <laughs> all right i'll go for my fourth one i'm gonna go with marvin gay I think he has, I mean, just in general, he, everybody, like he has a really cool life story. He, his star with getting into music, he originally didn't want to be like a solo artist himself. He was doing a lot of writing for other artists. Also, he was playing on a lot of other artists records too. Um, You know, he he plays like a bunch of different instruments. I think he was doing a lot of like drumming stuff, especially too back uh, at that point before his solo career really took off. And a lot of the music he was working on too, wasn't even an R&B. And so eventually then he starts to do his own music 
And we get to the point that he puts out what's going on, which in my opinion, I think is a top three album of all time, I would say. Um, unbelievable album. I'm sure many of you listening now have heard it, but if you haven't heard what's going on, just stop what you're doing or make time today to listen to that album front to back because it is a masterpiece. Like objectively, even though obviously saying that this is, is very subjective, like I believe that album is a top three album of all time. So, so good. And he has a very, very tragic death where his parents are in a fight with each other and he ends up intervening and his dad ends up shooting him twice. And one of them ended up, I believe, like puncturing his heart and he ended up dying from that. But he has, I think that has all the makings where it's, you know, with a lot of the biops that we see where there's, you know, the really sad, tragic ending but the legacy lives on and a pretty improbable story too. And on top of the music being incredible also, I mean, just the, his lyricism is just on another level. I mean, what's going on is, you know, by and large about police brutality and, and just about, you know, racial injustice. And he is just able to so like, I don't even know how to put it just so vividly describe what that time what that time period was like in the 70s and it's just real I can't say enough good things about it like I'm I'm getting even like just tripping up on words because there's just so so much to say about that album because of just the the varying layers of it and just how deep it is and and from top to bottom i mean the production on it the the music the the lyrics it's just like everything is just a plus all around so i think marvin gay would be perfect for one i don't think he's had one yet but definitely should yeah definitely want to that'd be very interesting there's a famous ethan booker tweet about his death uh if you get a chance to look that up uh so my last one is one that uh does have biopics kind of but or movies made about him but not really not really comprehensive and not really covering things uh the way that i think they should be uh it's michael jackson Mm. and now we're getting to the point where there's a a decent amount of distance between his death in fact by the time a theoretical michael jackson movie would come out if you started making it now it'd be 15 years plus since he died and there's a lot to cover there and it would not be a super fun watch but you have, there's so much to it. You have, he's a child star who was abused also famously by his dad. He, after that is the best selling artist of all time, really. In, in, I mean, I guess Elvis is, but like Michael Jackson's prime in the eighties and early nineties, he's selling unbelievable amounts of uh, albums. And he's like, he's a huge star despite being not a conventionally, um, not a conventionally handsome guy, but also not a conventional star at all. He's a super bizarre guy the entire time. And, you know, definitely in the 80s, you got less of people's public life. But as time goes on throughout the 90s, people start to realize that with how he dresses, he gets all this plastic surgery where he starts to not even look like a human. His house uh, is like kind of a theme park. He dangles his baby over a balcony. There's all these things that are just like huge red flags. And then in the early 90s, and then again, in the early 2000s, he's accused of molesting kids. Like, And I, everyone remembers that. It was a huge deal, mm-hmm. especially the second time around when it happened. He was never really held to account for that. Uh, it's 
it's it, that's an interesting i guess interesting it's a terrible thing but it was a huge deal at the time and he his life was definitely not he definitely wasn't performing and stuff after that like it was basically the end of his career and then he was his death i don't know if you know his death was ruled a homicide mm-hmm. because of uh after that he became a, a drug addict and he, he was basically supplied with the steady steam of drugs by a doctor quote unquote mm-hmm. uh now because of the circumstances surrounding his death that was considered a uh homicide so basically every stage of his life there's something to cover but it wouldn't be when you when you look at these music biopics a lot of them end up being guy had talent but was troubled usually their brother dies that's always a big thing elvis ray johnny cash then they make it big in some cases like bohemian rhapsody and rocket man they have something to hide but they make it big because they're very talented and usually there's great musical scenes they have. And then as time goes on, they either run into a problem with drugs or their ego or probably both their interpersonal relationships fall apart and they have to kind of strip away, you know, all of what they do and realize that they're deep down, they're a good person, talented, but they just were too famous, like too big for their britches basically. And they either go to rehab and get better or you know, they start being nicer to people. There's usually pretty simplistic endings like that. And they find a more simple life. And that's not Michael Jackson at all. This would be a very, very dark movie. It'd be probably a tough watch. And frankly, I know I said it would be 15 years by the time it came out. I'm willing to give it like another five to 10 years after that. Just so like, hopefully gives it a bunch of distance between people that were also famous alongside him mm-hmm. being around. Like, so there's, I guess, more bravery in hollywood with what to actually show in this thing not being scared of retaliation from people who think it's unfair or whatever you know just the the further we go along the less people who were contemporaries or friends with michael have any influence on him yeah no that's fair i mean it would be a a fascinating one to watch definitely a tough one like from start to finish like obviously everything you covered there at the end and i mean it's been documented also like when they were when he was in the jackson five and was very young like that that dude had a was not treated well by their father and no. I, will, I will leave it at that i don't know I, yeah oof. all around not not good vibes there um but it would be very interesting that would make for a good one all right my last one in the least surprising turn of events ever i'm going to go with the beatles <laughs> i think that there is there's just so much material that you could go off of with that i mean you, you start off with Beatlemania. Well, really them coming up is where you start off. I mean, if you wanted to go as early as John and Paul meeting when they were teenagers, but you get into Beatlemania and that was unlike anything that the world had ever seen before. You move into that where it gets so big that they start playing stadiums and are the first band to really do that. There's the iconic Shea Stadium concert. Obviously when they come over to America too, um, before that, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show, huge moment in history. Then you get into the mid 60s, where in like 1966, they decide they don't want to tour anymore because of the crowds just being so wild and chaotic that they can't even hear themselves perform because it's they they would describe it as it sounded like a jet taking off at all of their concerts just the entire time, like they just couldn't hear themselves at all. Um, And then you get into, you know, the era of Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's, which are some of the most influential albums of all time that completely, I feel like, just not only you know were defining moments in the history of popular music but really also on top of that i think just like 
set the tone for what the rest of the 60s was going to sound like as a decade. And, you know, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinions, too, I think the 60s is the best decade for music that we've had in terms of the history of popular music. And the Beatles are really at the heart of that. Then after that, you get into the white album sessions where, you know, John Lennon is starting to date Yoko Ono, the tensions in the band are starting to really rise. People are within like their inner circle are starting to leave and quit. Um, You know, there's talks about them breaking up when you get to that point around like 1968, then you get into 1969, which is like the Let It Be, Abbey Road era. And you have, again, just tensions are increasing as we had saw too in the Get Back documentary that came out on Disney Plus, which I cannot recommend enough. Like there will probably never be anything like that documentary for the rest of our lives or in history. Like that is just, I think, one of the coolest pieces of music history that we have ever gotten and that we will ever see just because of how really like behind the scenes it was of them just making an album from scratch at a time where just tensions were so high and their relationships were on such thin ice and none of these guys are even 30 years old yet by this point everything that the Beatles accomplished they did so before any of them were 30 by the time they broke up the oldest one was Ringo and he was 29 so you have this crazy eight-year span from 1962 to 1960 or to 1970 where they are they put out 14 full-length albums in that time, just an unprecedented output of music. Half of their most famous songs aren't even on the albums that they're putting out too because the way that they went about with with their recording and their promotional schedule is that they would put out singles in between the releases of their albums. And so when you think about songs like Hey Jude or I Want to Hold Your Hand or She Loves You or... Uh, I mean, it was on the movie soundtrack from uh, Magical Mystery Tour, but like Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, those were both put out as singles ahead of Sgt. Pepper's. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just like day, oh, day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, like Lady Madonna. Like there's just so many that you could just keep going through. Like their output was absolutely ridiculous. And on top of them being the most influential band of all time, I don't think that there's been a band that has evolved their sound to the degree that they did where you just see progressively with each year how drastic it is, but you really take those subsections with them where it's like 1962 to like 1965, where they're very much of like the boy band poppy music, which is really great still. But then really as they're coming out of help and and really even in help, you have that era of like help and rubber soul where after they start hanging out with Bob Dylan and smoking weed, like just the, the quality of the music and the lyricism just and the production value too. And just the, the innovativeness just goes through the roof. And then you get into the psychedelic era with revolver, Sgt. Peppers and magical mystery tour. And like, again, just a, a defining moment, you know, for the sixties there. Um, and when you get to the end too, and, and there's a lot of Indian influence too, in their music as well. And then you get to the end when they are like Abbey road is in my opinion, the best album of all time, like front to back. I, that is a, a just unbelievable, like piece of, of music that I think I could listen to every day for the rest of my life and would never get tired of it because of how great it is and how catchy it is. And it's all of them really putting all of their bullshit aside to just make one last really, really great record. And it was their best one, in my opinion. So you have all the drama there between the band members, between John and Paul, um, you know, and, and George Harrison leaving it too. That was another big part of the get back documentary with George leaving during the, um, 
the Let It Be sessions. Ringo had quit during the uh, the White Album sessions. Um, there was talk too when George left that they were maybe going to try and get Eric Clapton to fill in for him and to become his <laughs> full time replacement. Wait, didn't didn't Eric Clapton fill in for him in another famous way? Uh, he wrote he well didn't necessarily fill in, but he plays the guitar solo on "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." They asked him to come in and do that. Oh, I was thinking of something else. Oh, that he stole George's wife. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And wrote a famous song about. He did. Her. Yeah. Yep. George's second wife was way cooler, anyways. Who is his now widow? But anyways, though, beside the point. Um, there's just so much there, and on top of the music too. Like the, it's just them. Like they dominated pop culture and it's beyond music i mean it's in terms of like fashion it's the haircuts it you know they were movie stars as well with a hard day's night and help like putting out feature films which was something that was very different and then like acting and stuff and they were all good actors and they just had this undeniable charm to them and as you can tell, I'm a huge Beatles fan, everybody. I, I spent, and Taylor can attest to this, I spent my high school years pretty much just like studying those dudes every single day, watching every interview, every live performance. I've read every book, listened to every album more times than I probably want to admit. Um, and I would love that. Like there's been some very poorly done, like you, like you were mentioning before with like the uh, TV film things where they're like over multiple parts, um, but nothing really of ever like high quality, like feature film quality. And I feel like I would really love to see somebody like do that right and fit that eight year period of 62 to 70 just into a nice two and a half, three hour movie because it would just be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Another thing that's kind of surprising hasn't been done, but I, I, I would say of everyone we mentioned today, no doubt in my mind, the Beatles are getting one within the next five to 10 years. You think so? It seems to me that this is basically a form of IP. Uh, then and we all know like that, how important that is right now for movies. Look at the most expensive movies made every year. It's all intellectual property. So it's pretty rare that anything gets into the $100 million range anymore without it. But like some of those of the past few years have been musical ones. And I think studios will be willing to bet that people will go see those. Like Elvis just did very well commercially is in the midst of doing that, I should say. Rocket Man did, Bohemian Rhapsody did, they all made money. And I think the Beatles, it's gonna get people that don't go to the theater a lot anymore, people that are older, that's something that hasn't been happening as much until Top Gun came out really. And I mean, even like, there's a million people that are your age, our age that like the Beatles. So oh, yeah. They're the best artists of all time, baby. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, I think they'll do it within like before the decade is over, there'll be a, a major Beatles biopic. I hope so. That'd be pretty cool. What uh, do you have any other honorable mentions that you'd like to include? Mm, not really. I was going to say, I was thinking about Keith Richards, but you already said that. I think just a couple of other ones that I thought would be kind of cool. Sam cook is another one. Yeah, tragic death. I think his would be really, really interesting. I don't think that's been done before either. I'm pretty sure. I don't remember it. I'd also like to see a Talking Heads documentary because I think it'd be really weird and also fun. And there's a lot of band drama and pretty much any band that has like a ton of drama, which is most famous bands, I should say. Count me in for that. I think that there was a Talking Heads movie, but it wasn't a biopic, was it? 
Like no, that was their. Pro- Are you talking about Stop Making Sense? Yeah, like the, that's just like a live concert movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ooh, one other one too that I think would be really good. Speaking of band drama, is the band because if anybody may not be familiar, um, before they became like their own thing, they were Bob Dylan's backing band. Mm-hmm. So they ended up doing their own thing, and the reason why they're called the band is because. Bob Dylan would always be like, oh, and this is the band. Like they were the backing band. And so a lot of drama there though. I think they're really entertaining. I mean, you have the whole dynamic between Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson, their drummer slash lead singer and lead guitarist respectively. And, uh, and also you have the last waltz, which Martin Scorsese directed, which is the concert film of their last concert ever, which featured like an endless stream of famous artists and is probably my favorite concert documentary of all time um or live con whatever you want to call it um really really fascinating and that kind of gets into some of like the band dynamics and everything and just of like that do you think uh that's the only scorsese movie that you've seen and i haven't yes i know you're huge alice doesn't live here anymore head i taylor can say with probably 100 certainty that that is the only scorsese movie that i have seen that you have seen that mr head showed that to us in music class in high school what the band the last waltz no not my class really did you watch amadeus yeah oh okay what did he show i mean i remember watching history rock and roll amadeus yeah i don't remember watching that at all Lame ah, is. god we watched a lot of movies in mr head's class shout out to mr head yeah what a king he really was. No, are you sure that was that class and not the history of rock and roll i don't know if you took that class I don't even think I did take that. Did I take that? I don't know. I, I try to block mm, a lot of high I school out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I, I didn't watch in that class. I think I would remember. Interesting. Well, either way, at least I have that on you now. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Maybe I'll have to watch it. I'm actually kind of behind you on Scorsese. There's like a dozen Scorsese movies I haven't seen. So I would be very down to watch sometime if you would ever like to, perhaps over yeah. some beverages. Sure, sure. So in making this like list I put together, I was looking at Rolling Stones like list of the top 30 biopics, musical biopics. And I because I was going to be like, I don't want to make sure that none of these people have a big one that I missed or am I forgetting about. And it's a Rolling Stones list. So I knew it was going to be stupid, but I was kind of shocked. I was like, first of all, eight miles on there, not really a biopic. I disagree with the idea that it's a biopic. Okay, that's fair. It's it's not exactly one. It's close, but whatever. That's not what I was offended by. They put it over Amadeus. Really? Yeah. Dude, Amadeus goes hard. It does. It had two separate people nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars in the same movie. That is... Oh, my God, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, the guys that played... Mozart and Salieri. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, great, great movie. That should mm-hmm. be top five easily. Ooh, a couple other honorable mentions. Well, not even, they, this might even sneak in. I'd love to see a Lauren Hill biopic too. I think mm. that'd be really interesting about like the evolution from like her career getting off the ground to then the Fugees to then her solo career. And then the fact that she put out one of the best albums ever and then just hasn't put out a studio album since. I think that's really never will now. Yeah, I know at this point, which is so sad. Um, I have a lot of questions about that, but yeah, so I think that would be great. And also I would love just because Andre 3000 is my second favorite rapper and just outcast is one of my favorite artists of all time too. I'd love to see an outcast one too. 
I think that'd be really interesting too. Cause I think you could definitely then go from like the perspective of like, you know, in the nineties, the big thing was like East coast versus West coast when it came to like LA rappers versus New York rappers. And then outcast just comes onto the scene from Atlanta and just bringing like Southern rap into the mainstream like that. I think that could be a really also interesting take on it as well. Plus I just love them both Andre and big boy. So I think that'd be a, a really cool one. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be definitely great. Taylor, do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share before we, we call it a day? Um, let's see. My random former Sabres player of the week is Dimebag Daryl Shannon. Oh my God. I don't know if I could top that. Um, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Jordan Leopold. All right. Okay. One other recommendation I have everybody too: get your tickets for cobblestone live happening this coming weekend. My band Canadis is playing on Saturday. The band Mr. Wives is headlining. It's a weekend festival taking place in the cobblestone district, right by key bank center downtown. It spans the streets right in front of Buffalo ironworks. And then behind it covering in the surface lot, I believe too. And then also over by Lockhouse distillery again, Mr. Wives is the headliner really, really great international touring band. My band is playing at 515 on Saturday. It's going to be a really great time. So I highly recommend everybody come out. And uh, again, I will, anytime I talk about one of my shows, I will maintain the offer on the table that if you listen to this and come up to me at the show on Saturday or see me at the festival and say, Hey, I listen to straight up Sabres and I heard about this from there. I will buy you a beer. And if it's the case of what happened when I played at the Sabres game and that happened, if you are not of legal age, I'll dap you up and give you a high five. But if you are of legal drinking age, I will buy you a beer if you come say what's up. So with that being said, everybody, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Straight Up Sabres presented by the Hockey Podcast Network and the Charging Buffalo. Make sure you check out both the presenters of this podcast on their respective websites. Whatever streaming platform you're currently using to listen to this episode, go check out all of our other great fellow shows on both networks and also make sure you're following them on social media as well. With that being said, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Straight Up Sabres. And last but not least, as Taylor mentioned before, head over to DraftKings and use that promo code THPN to take advantage of great deals. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Thursday, diving into the latest news from free agency. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great start to your week. This has been Straight Up Sabres. (laughs) 